All right, children, you are dismissed for Children's Church. Everyone else, let's go ahead and take our Bibles and open to John chapter 18. Amen. John chapter 18. This morning we're going to look at chapters 18 and 19 as we ask the question of Jesus, Who are you and where are you from? Let's uh, let's open up in prayer, and after we pray, we'll jump into the text, and we'll start walking through this together. Uh, let's let's jump in. Uh, let's pray, and then we'll then we'll jump in. So let's start by praying, Lord. We just thank you for giving us this opportunity to be here this morning, Lord. I pray that you would be with me as I preach now. That you would, Lord, just let your will be done in me and through me. Lord, as we walk through these chapters together, as we look at the death and the crucifixion of Christ, as we look at who you are and where you are from, as we try to, Lord, answer the question of what does this passage teach us about you this morning, I pray that you would speak through me in a powerful way, that you would be glorified and honored, that you would anoint me through your Holy Spirit, and Lord, at the end of this day, that you would be glorified in not only how we listen, but how we respond and apply your word to us this morning. Lord, we We thank you for your grace in our lives, and we pray, Lord Jesus, that you speak to us now through your word. It's in your holy name that we pray. Amen. Amen. So, John chapter 18 and 19, we're going to look at this morning as we set the stage for Easter Sunday coming up next Sunday. And so, as we look at this passage, we're going to ask the question, who are you and where are you from? We're asking Jesus, who are you and where are you from? And in the text, we're going to see three truths concerning Jesus that become evident during his arrest and during his crucifixion. And so, what we're going to do, we're not going to hit every detail within these two chapters. I promise we won't be here that long. We're going to be here longer than normal, but we won't be here that long. And so we're going to hit some highlights in chapter 18 and then moving into chapter 19, which are going to prepare us for the resurrection that we're going to look at next Sunday morning. And so what let's do is let's jump in chapter 18. We're just going to read verses 1 through 11. We'll walk through them together. Then we'll jump in to the rest of chapter 18 and 19 here in a few moments. So let's just jump into chapter 18, verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where he, where, excuse me, there, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? And they answered, Jesus of Nazareth. And so Jesus said to them, I am. And Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. And when Jesus said to them, I am, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus answered in verse 8, I told you that I am. So if you seek me, let these men go. Now this was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servants and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup 
that the Father has given me. So in the text, we're again going to see three truths concerning Jesus that become evident during his arrest and crucifixion. Number one, Jesus proves himself divine during his arrest. Jesus proves himself divine during his arrest. Now, for those who've been coming on Wednesday nights, we have been walking through the Gospel of John for months now. And so as we've walked through the Gospel of John, we've seen sort of the main theme of the Gospel of John is that John is trying to prove that Jesus is God, that Jesus specifically is the Son of God. Remember, John is the Gospel that starts, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John's the one that tells us that Jesus Christ was in the very beginning with God, as God, and that Jesus was the Word of God that created all things that we know and see. Everything that exists in this world was created by Jesus, the Word of God, who was with God and was God in the beginning. And so John has made it his mission throughout the entire gospel to prove that Jesus is the eternal Son of God, that he has been God and has existed with God as God from the beginning of time, past that because he's the eternal Son of God, something that our frail minds simply cannot comprehend. Amen? And so all throughout the Gospel of John, we've been looking at it on Wednesday nights. John is proving Jesus is God. He does things that only God can do. He says things that only God would say. He is without doubt God in the flesh. And one of the ways that John does this is by highlighting the I am statements all throughout the Gospel of John. So what are the I am statements? Well, in order to understand that, we got to go back to Exodus chapter 3. Don't turn there. I'm going to read it for you. But it was back in Exodus chapter 3, verse 13, when God had instructed Moses to go to the Israelites enslaved in Egypt and prepare them for God's deliverance that Moses asked God this question. If I come to the people of Israel and I say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? Now, remember the backdrop. Moses has has not been with the people of Israel ever in his lifetime. He was raised in Pharaoh's house. He was raised as an Egyptian, but he was a Jew. He then committed murder trying to rescue a Jew from Egyptian uh, torment and persecution. He then fled to a faraway place out in the middle of nowhere. That's where he'd lived. And so as he makes his way back to the nation of Israel and says to them, Oh, your God sent me to prepare you to be delivered from Egypt. He knows they're going to ask, who are you and what God are you talking about? We don't know you, but what God... So he says, God, if they ask me this, who do I say sent me? And here's what God responds back in chapter 13, verse 14. God says this, I am who I am. In other words, God says, I am everything. God is everything. In him all things exist and consist. Without God there is nothing. What is God? God is everything. He is unmistakably the great I am. And from that moment on, God became known as the great I am. God is everything. And so as Jesus makes his way throughout his earthly ministry, Jesus will continually say that he is the great I am in certain ways that 
show he's the Son of God that help the Israelites see that he's the Son of God, but also drive the Israelites, especially the Pharisees, mad in, because he's claiming to be the Son of God. Let me give you an example. Take, uh, look back with me in chapter 8. I'm not hearing pages turn. Come on, turn with me. Chapter 8. Your Bible's still open. I know it. I know I can't hear your phone if you're scrolling back. That's okay. I'll give you a pass. But if you got your Bible, flip with me back. Chapter 8. Jesus is in a conversation, a lengthy conversation, by the way, that he's having with the Pharisees and the Jews. And he picks up in verse 48 of chapter 8, and he begins to explain to them how excited Abraham was in the coming of Christ. And he makes the declaration that Abraham longed for the days that Jesus would make himself known. And so basically Jesus is saying that Abraham, who's been dead for a long, long time, Long for the day that I would show up. And so the Pharisees asked Jesus this question. Notice in verse 57. They asked him. Uh, so the Jews said to him. You are not yet 50 years old. And have you seen Abraham? And Jesus said to them. Truly, truly, I say to you. Before Abraham was. I am. Now make sure you don't think they missed it because notice what happens in verse 59. So they picked up stones to throw at him, right? They knew exactly what he was declaring. Jesus was declaring, I am the great I am. I've existed with God for all of eternity. So yeah, I know Abraham. Yes, I was there when Abraham rescued uh, or, or was called out by God to establish his people. Yes, I was there with Abraham. And the Jews all pick up stones and say, nope, that's blasphemy. You're claiming to be God. And so all throughout the Gospel of John, Jesus is making these declarations. If you continue from there in chapter 8, in chapter 9, Jesus heals a man born blind. In chapter 10, verse 30, he says that he's one with the Father. In chapter 11, he raises Lazarus from the dead. Again, does things that only God can do. Amen? Can't raise, we can't raise from the dead, right? That's not, not really within our, our know-how. Right, And so he's doing things that only God can do. He continues to make these claims of divinity, both publicly to the Jews and privately to the disciples, which ultimately leads us to what we see at his arrest in chapter 18. And all that Jesus has done up until this point is cause the Pharisees to vow within themselves that they are going to murder Jesus at the moment they get the opportunity. Not only are they going to kill Jesus, but we saw this past Wednesday night, they're going to kill Lazarus too because Lazarus is proof that Jesus is God. They're willing to kill as many people as they can as long as they can kill Jesus. They have gotten to the point where they just want to murder him. Why? Because he's proven to be the Son of God. And so when we finally get to chapter 18, God's providence and God's sovereignty has worked itself out in timing. And so now they are going to get what they've wanted. But what they don't know is what they want is God's plan. Isn't that amazing? God is using the evil and the wickedness that is their plan to murder Jesus all to accomplish his great purposes, which is Jesus going to the cross to redeem the lost of the world. Notice what happens in chapter 18, verses 1 through 11. I won't read it again, but notice... Jesus goes to, the, goes to a place, the garden, where the betrayer, Judas, knows it very well. Judas gets this band of soldiers, some estimate it to be in the thousands. They make their way to Jesus with torches, with lanterns, with weapons. They're there to arrest Jesus, right? Remember, Jesus is surrounded by, by his 12 disciples, one of which is a betrayer that's actually leading the betrayal. And so he's surrounded by his 11 disciples who are fishermen, 
tax collectors, farmers, not soldiers, right? And they show up with this mob of soldiers to arrest Jesus. Wonder why they show up with such a large mob of soldiers to arrest a man that's surrounded by fishermen, farmers, and tax collectors, right? Because they know he's not an ordinary man. This is the man that raised Lazarus from the dead. They're scared to death. Right? And so they come in secret at night. Most other gospels focus on the betraying kiss of Judas as it identifies Jesus. But John wants you to see that Jesus is God. So notice what he highlights. This crowd comes forward. Jesus isn't hiding. He steps to the front and says, whom are you looking for? They say, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus says, I am. Now your translation, like mine, most likely says, I am he. Because that's proper English. But it misses the point that John has been building to from the beginning of his gospel. Jesus is without doubt declaring, I am the great I am. And notice what happens when he says, I am. Look with me back in verse 6. When Jesus said to them, I am, they drew back and fell to the ground. This, this, I say this about so many passages, but I'm telling you, this is probably my favorite passage in the New Testament. Because here, the divinity of Jesus is unmistakable. These soldiers show up with weapons drawn. They are ready to go to battle. And Jesus sets them on their hiney with two words. I am. And they fall back to the ground and every one of them is laid flat on their back. And then he says to them again, this is why I think sarcasm, sarcasm, there's a little bit of it in scripture. That's why I like it, right? There's just a little bit. And what does Jesus say? Who are you looking for again? I love that, amen? Isn't that incredible? Who are you looking for again? And all of them are now on their heinies, laid out on the ground. And I guarantee you when they say Jesus of Nazareth this time, they say it with a lot less authority and force. Can't you hear it? Can't you hear the quiver in their voice and the fear, right? Who are you looking for again? Jesus and Nazareth, right? And what does Jesus do? He says, you're here according to God's plan. I'm ready to go. Just let these guys go, right? Let these guys go because I made a promise to them and God's going to fulfill his word. Let's go. Where do you want to go, right? And what Jesus declares is that he is the great I am. And what became crystal clear during his arrest is that Jesus is the great I am. And as the great I am, he's the one that is in complete and total control. Which means that Jesus is heading to the cross not to experience defeat, but he's heading to the cross under his own volition to experience victory over death and sin. Amen? We serve the great I am. Jesus is fully and completely divine, and he proves it during his arrest. And then secondly, Jesus proves himself innocent during his trial. Now, jump with me now down to verse 19. If you look at verses uh, 12 and following, you see the fall of Peter, and you'll see the restoration of Peter later on in the Gospel of John. But let's jump into the trial now. Jesus has been, excuse me, arrested. He's now been taken to the, the high priest's house, or actually the, the, the daddy-in-law, the father-in-law of the current high priest, Ananias's house. And so jump with me now in verse 19. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. And Jesus answered him, I've spoken openly to the world. 
I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all the Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who've heard me what I said, the things of which, excuse me, ask me what I said. They know what I've said. Verse 22, when he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand saying, is that how you answer the high priest? And Jesus answered him, if what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? And Ananias then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. So Jesus makes his way into the father-in-laws of the high priest, the the former high priest, Ananias, the one who apparently still had all the authority as the high priest. And he stands before trial and he asks him what he's done. And Jesus says, what I've done, you've seen. Everything I've done, I've done openly. I've done in the public's eye. You've seen it all. You've heard it all. And that's why you're so scared. It's because you've seen it all and you've heard it all, right? And as he says this, he's struck in the face by one of the soldiers. And he turns to the soldier and he says, What have I done wrong? Why'd you hit me? Find fault in me. Everything I've done, I've done in the public's eye. Find fault in me. If I'm guilty, prove it. And what do they do? They send him away. Because they cannot find fault in Jesus. Jesus has not done anything by which he can be guilty of. Now, understand, what are the Jews trying to do here? They're trying to get Jesus to prove he's guilty under Roman law so Rome can kill Jesus for being a traitor. In other words, they want Jesus to say, I am the king. I've come to overthrow Rome. That's what they thought the Messiah was going to do. They want Jesus to say that out loud so that Rome would have a reason to crucify him. But what they wanted to do, they They want to crucify him because he's claiming to be the son of God. They're trying to crucify him for blasphemy. Rome doesn't care about blasphemy because they're not Jews. And so all of this is going on behind the scenes. So they send him to Caiaphas' house. And after a quick experience at Caiaphas' house, then he makes his way to Pilate's house where, uh, where he will stand before Rome. And as Pilate begins to ask Jesus questions, Pilate is going to pronounce his innocent three separate times. So jump with me now in chapter 18, verses 33 and following. So verse 33. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord? Or did others say it to you about me? And Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from this world. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king. Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And Pilate said to him, what is truth? And after he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. But you have a custom that I should release one man from you at the Passover. So you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now, Barabbas was a robber. Verse, chapter 19, verse 1. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hell, king of the Jews, and struck him and hit him in the face. 
And Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. And Pilate said to them, Behold the man. And when the chief priests and the others saw him, they cried out, Crucify him, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. What's John trying to help us see? That Pilate finds no guilt in him. Pilate is making it clear that under Roman law, Jesus has done nothing wrong. The Jews have made it clear they can't find anything by which to justify crucifying Jesus except for his claim to be the Son of God. And so in verse 7, notice the Jews cry out to Pilate and profess just that. Notice what it says in verses 7 and 9. The Jews answered him, we have a law. And according to that law, he ought to die because he's made himself the son of God. Now notice Pilate's response in verse 8. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. And he entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, where are you from? And Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate goes out. He's innocent. He's done nothing wrong. What do you want me to do? They say, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. And he says, if you want him crucified, take him and crucify him. He's done nothing wrong. He's innocent. And they say he's not innocent according to our law. According to our law, he's guilty because he makes himself out to be the son of God. And when Pilate heard that, after hearing all the testimony of what Jesus had done, after talking to Jesus directly, and understand what we have is probably not all that was said, after hearing all the evidence against Jesus, when Pilate hears that he claims to be the son of God, Pilate realizes that there's more evidence to support the fact that he's actually the son of God than there is that he's guilty of any sin. And so Pilate gets scared. And Pilate goes back to Jesus and says, where are you from? Are you really the son of God? He's trying his best to figure out who Jesus is because what he knows to be true is that Jesus is innocent. And he's guilty of no sin. Now the question is, why does it matter that Jesus is innocent? Why does John go out of his way to say three times that Jesus is innocent? Because for Jesus to pay for our sins on the cross, understand he had to be the spotless lamb of God. If there was any sin found in Jesus then he would not have been a worthy sacrifice for us. It's like when you go to the store and you see something on the shelf that you're dying to have, that you want, that you can't live without, and you see the price of it, right? In order for you to have that thing, you've got to pay the entire price, right? And if you look in your bank account, like I look in my bank account sometimes, it becomes clear, I don't have enough to pay that price, right? Like that is beyond my reach. That's more money than I have to be able to spend. And that's what would have happened if Jesus had had sin in his life, then the blood of Jesus Christ would not have paid for our sin. It would have been insufficient funds. But because Jesus Christ was the spotless lamb of God, then his sacrifice on the cross was sufficient to pay for the sins of all mankind. And that's why John wants us to see that Jesus is not only the Son of God, but that secondly, 
Jesus was innocent. He was guilty of no sin. So Jesus proves himself divine during his arrest. Jesus proves himself innocent during his trial. And then thirdly, Jesus proves himself authoritative during his death. Look with me now. Jump all the way into chapter 19, picking up in verse 17. So they took Jesus and went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. In verse 18, there they crucified him and with two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. And Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. And it read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews, making the Jews read this inscription for the place. Excuse me, many of the Jews uh, read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And it was written in Aramaic and Latin and in Greek. So the chief priests and the Jews, the Jews said to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am the king of the Jews. And Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. And when the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments, they divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but let's cast lots for it so that we can sell it, right? This was to fulfill what the scripture says. They divided my garments among them and for my clothing, they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things, but standing by the cross of Jesus was his mother, and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. And when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved, which is John, standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. Now pause there for a minute. What Jesus is saying is, Mom, John's now going to take care of you. John, you're going to take care of my mom. He wasn't saying... Look at your son on the cross. He was passing his mother's well-being on to the disciple whom he loved, which is John. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own house. Verse 28. Now after this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. And a jar full of sour wine stood there. And so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to its mouth. And when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. And so as you make your way into chapter 19, verses 17 through 30, we see the crucifixion of Jesus. We see that Jesus does things in order to fulfill scripture so that scripture would scream loudly that Jesus is the son of God. We see all throughout the process that Jesus is in complete and total control even though he's hanging on a tree. So that Jesus is able to ensure that scripture is fulfilled one after the other. And when all the scriptures told concerning him had been fulfilled and his time had come, then Jesus yielded up his spirit and declared it is finished. Now, why is that such an important detail that John gives us well two reasons that I want to highlight one no one takes God's life Jesus has the authority to lay lay down his life and to pick it back up again as he made clear in John chapter 10 John chapter 10 verses 17 and 18 this is what Jesus declared for this reason the father loves me 
Because I lay down my life that I might take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my father. And so what scripture makes clear in verse 30 is that no one took his life. He laid his life down. Why? Because he has authority. He is God. And in the same way he laid it down, he's got the authority to pick it back up again, which we'll get to see next Sunday morning, right? So the first reason is Jesus has all the authority. He lays down his life because he alone is God. And then secondly, only the one in charge can tell you when something is finished. Think about that. You're working. You're not the boss. Who gets to declare when something's done? The one in charge. So when Jesus declares it is finished, Jesus is demonstrating his authority over the situation. I love how the story plays out, especially when you look at all the details. Remember that at this point, the Jews had come to to Pilate and said, hey, can we go break the legs of of the people? Because if they're hanging over Passover, it's wrong. And so we want to speed this process up. And so they come ready to break the legs of Jesus, which would have violated prophecy. But they come to break the legs of Jesus, trying to get it wrapped up. And Jesus is already gone. Why? Because he was the one who was in charge. He was the one who had absolute authority because he alone is the Son of God. This means that everything that happened on the cross happened as a part of God's plan. The arrest, the crucifixion, the death all point to who Jesus is as the Son of God who died for our sins that through his death and resurrection we might have eternal life. And in the same way that Jesus laid his life down, he also picks it back up. He raises from the dead and he secures victory for all of us who would place our faith in Jesus Christ. And what I want you to understand that John highlights in this text is that what Jesus does through his death, through his crucifixion, and through his resurrection is all that matters in life. This is what life is all about. Life is about professing the truth of who Jesus is personally. And life is about sharing the gospel with those who do not yet know. That's what matters in life. What matters in life is what affects your eternity and what affects the eternity of those you love and those you don't even know. That's what matters in life. Amen? And too often we allow the things of this world to distract us from that which is eternal. We get wrapped up and we get busy about all kind of stuff that doesn't matter at all. And what John is trying to declare to us is this is what matters. This is worth living your life for. I know Will told me, he he, he preached a series, Is It Worth It? Right? He tried to get me to preach it again this Sunday because he said they're still not getting it. I'm kidding. You you remember the joke he told? There you go. He told me some of you remember that joke, right? But that's the reality. It is worth it. And I'll tell you this, it's the only thing worth it. If you live your life for anything other than the cross, it is not worth it. And you will regret it. Either during this life or in the life to come, I promise you, you will regret it because whatever you're living for outside of Christ is not worth it. But anything and everything we do for Christ is absolutely worth it. 
Amen? And so this morning, as we, as we look at the arrest and the crucifixion and the death of Christ, I want to ask you, first of all, have you placed your faith in Jesus, the Son of God? He died on the cross to pay the penalty of sin that you owed. Because your sin is what separates you from God. And it is only through the death of Jesus Christ that your sins can be paid for and that you can have eternal life. And so if you're here this morning, I want to first of all just encourage you, if you've never trusted Jesus personally, I mean, not, not like your parents, your grandparents, not the community, not I'm a Christian because I live in this area or I come to church. No, have you personally surrendered your life to Christ and allowed him to transform who you are? If not, then today can be the day that you give your heart and life to Jesus Christ. And then secondly, I want to encourage you, don't live for anything other than the gospel. Everything else will let you down. Everything else will prove to be unworthy. But everything we do for the kingdom is worth everything it costs. And it does cost. Amen? It costs. But it's absolutely worth it. Because Jesus really is the Son of God. He really did die on the cross. And he really did raise from the dead. And he really is seated at the right hand of the Father waiting for the day that he really will come back and take us all to heaven where we will spend all of eternity. The fact that it's real is what makes it worth it. Will you pray with me? With your heads bowed and your eyes closed, let me first of all ask you, do you know Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior? If you're here this morning and you've never trusted Jesus, then in just a few moments we're going to stand to sing the hymn of invitation. And as we do, I'm going to encourage you to come forward and do something bold. It's worth it, I promise. And come forward and just say to me, Will, I I want to give my life to Christ. And I'll tell you everything that you need to know so that you can give your heart and life to Jesus Christ. If you're here today and you feel God calling you unto himself, As I like to say, that is proof that God exists and it is proof that God loves you. And so if you feel God speaking to your heart, do not say no. Say yes to Jesus this morning. Believers, let me encourage you. Live your life for the sake of the gospel. All of us in this room can confess that this week we've probably been tied up with things that are not important. We've wasted time. We've, we've gotten e- exhausted over things that aren't important in the sake of eternity. Let's confess it and let's recommit ourselves to living our lives for the sake of the gospel because it alone is worth it. Believers, let me also just remind you that we're about to partake in communion. And so during this time of invitation, I also want to encourage all of us to search our hearts, confess sin that we've committed, Remembering that he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. But let's partake of the supper in a worthy manner by confessing our sins to the Lord even now. Lord, we thank you so much for the way in which you're working in our hearts and our lives even now. We pray that this invitation would bring you glory in how we respond to your word this morning. It's in your holy name that we pray. Amen.